On today's episode of The Eater Upsell, Greg and I are talking with Paul Liebrandt, who, if you were an avid follower of food media, say, up until about three years ago, you were probably reading his name all the frickin' time. And then he just kind of disappeared. Uh, he had a restaurant called Cortone, which got two Michelin stars. He also had a restaurant in Brooklyn called The Elm. He was the subject of a documentary called A Matter of Taste. And you dined at some of his restaurants, right, Helen? Yeah, I was a big, big fan of his cooking. And when The Elm closed and he kind of removed himself from the restaurant world, I think I was not the only person who was a little heartbroken. So I'm super excited that we got the chance to sit down with him and talk about what he's been up to and why it is that he's kind of okay not having a restaurant right now. Awesome. Well, I look forward to hearing uh, what's going on with, with Mr. Paul Liebrandt. But before we jump into the conversation that Greg and I had with Paul Liebrandt, a reminder to all of you listening at home, make sure you're subscribed to The Eater Upsell. Just hit that subscribe button right there on your podcast listening device. And if you are so inclined, give us five stars on the Apple Podcast Store because we would give you five stars. You're fantastic listeners. So, you know, pay it forward. Anyway, Greg, let's go to that interview we did with Paul Liebrandt because it's freaking great. I don't think that uh, Jiro Dreams of Sushi or even A Chef's Table and some of these other documentaries would come out if it was not for A Matter of Taste. I feel like that really got the ball rolling. I feel like it was a very big moment in like food media when it came out. I don't know. How do you, what, what is your relationship to that film, Paul? Can you watch it? Do you like it? <laughs> um, I, no, I, I personally don't like watching myself. I get very uncomfortable, um, especially the younger me. As as a you know, we all do at some point. When was uh, it shot? It started to be shot in two thousand and one, and ended uh, shooting in two thousand and ten. So ten years. That's an extraordinary yes. span of time. And it wasn't meant to be a movie. What was it? Supposed so it to was be? my my friend Sally, who's the director. So this is when I first came to this country at Atlas, and then I was uh, twenty three, twenty four, and she just asked if it was okay to stand in the corner and um, with her and a friend and, and just shoot, I suppose, some of the dishes and what we're doing. No particular reason. Uh, and I said, absolutely, sure. So she did it. And she just kept coming back every month. But no real plan. No, no like, we're going to take this footage and do something with it. And I said, OK, fine. So I carried on. I mean, like five years into the docu, <laughs> five years into filming, I'm like, really? Like, you've got a thousand hours at this point. What are you? Still no plan. And then um, when we when we opened Cortan, it was it seemed like a good sort of ending for the the ten years. Um, nine months later, she called me up and said, "We've edited something like two thousand hours of footage down to an hour and a half. Come and watch it." What was that experience? And and uh, and well, I mean, from ten years prior, I'd forgotten. All the filming that we had done, 2001, 2, 3, 4, 5, I had completely forgotten. So I sat down and watched, and that's like the first half hour of the movie. And I was like, oh, oh, God, I was young. Oh, my goodness. Well, I said that, Oof. as you do, right? Um, funny, but a little cringeworthy for me personally to watch, I suppose. And um, they, I think they got a really good editor on it, <laughs> is what I could say. And, um, I, you know, they did the work. I, I just was the subject, but they were the ones that did a great job of filming it. And uh, I guess people kind of liked it. So. Do you still look at that younger version of yourself with a cringy attitude? No, no, no. I think just the initial when you know, you, if you were to look at footage of yourself from 15 years ago, shot over a period of time, there'd be things you'd be like, oh, I remember that. That was cool. And things that you'd be like, God, I wish I hadn't said that. Yes. But, but that's being young, right? That's that's that what that's everybody Youth is regret everybody no no not not regret just it's kind of funny sometimes to watch yourself that's all but uh i i certainly uh, appreciate obviously what they they did with 10 years of keep coming back and filming it was kind of amazing that's an extraordinary yeah. scope yes. for the documentary too Absolutely, i mean it's, yeah. i think it's there are very few documentaries that have that kind of longitudinal depth to with, them. I mean, with regards to food, there is none. Yeah. I, I, As I see it, I think it also kind of tells a lot of the story of what New York was going through dur during those years through your story about yeah. the kind of boom I mean, we and started, the bust. And we, we started filming a month after 9-11 when the city wasn't exactly feeling restaurant, you know, like 
whoop-de-doo. It was there were a lot of other things going on. So they started filming then, and it it just went on from there. So yeah, you see it's from there through, you know, Time Warner, the Passes, the, the, the Mama Foucault's being open all the way through then into Corton, you know, 08 when the economic meltdown, um, you know. So you they managed to capture all of that through that whole period, through the lens, obviously, of, of doing uh, restaurants and food and cooking and what have you. Greg and I both, I think, went to Corton a couple of times each when it was around and it was a favorite of so many people. Tell us about Corton. Well, Corton was a restaurant on uh, West Broadway and White Street in Tribeca that was um, uh, modern French, contemporary French cuisine that um, I was the chef owner of. Um, and uh, it were, it closed about three years ago. And we had two Michelin stars and a few other things. So the two Michelin stars are an extraordinary accomplishment. And like mm. you said, maintaining, getting the stars is one thing and then maintaining them. Well, yeah, it's, it's a fragile thing because they're not technically yours, they're Michelin's. So... Um, as you see, you know, Michelin takes them away, gives them. It's up to them. So the nice thing about that is, I mean, I, I'm i a European, you know, obviously at heart. That's where I come from. Even though I'm a New Yorker, my, my training was in Europe. So for Michelin, it's very dear to me. It really is. And I think that it's one of those guys which I like because every year it gives you, you have to work for it. And never relax and sit back and go, well, we have stars. We're fine. Right, you get your Times review, you've got your stars forever. Well, no, you get reviewed in the Times, and and probably the New York Times is harder, actually, to get a good, you know, like a four-star review in the Times, I would feel is a lot harder than than doing a a Michelin two-star. But I think it gives you every year to keep pushing and to keep making sure that your standards and what you do, you don't drop. I mean, ultimately, the customer is king. So customers come in, they know that you're X amount stars, they expect a certain level. And our job, what we do in the restaurant, is to deliver that level every time they come in. It's a dream, and that to me, that's the challenge. So you worked that's in some part of it. You worked in some yeah. great kitchens in Europe, and and kind of came yeah. up as a very young man um, to these mm. great kitchens. Why New York? Like, what was the what was the call? Well, funny, funny, actually. <laughs> so I never thought about coming to America when I was young. I'm young, like a teenager. So I started working at 15, um, full time. In, in uh, What was the job? Lascargo in London, one-star Michelin, and I was a commie chef. I was an apprentice commie. And peeling onions, picking spinach, that kind of thing. But the the summer before that, um, I went to boarding school from like 7 to 14 or 15. So on my summer break, like a summer job kind of thing, um, there was a new restaurant in Leicester Square, and I applied for the dishwashing position there for a you know, like three months or something, <laughs> kind of foretelling. The name of the restaurant was New York, New York. Oh, my gosh. Wow. And at the Foreshadowing. time, I was like, hey, what and so they served, you know, ribs and like American fare. And I went and worked there and it was great. And everybody was older. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm walking into the locker room and there's, you know, 18, 19-year-old girls getting undressed with no clothes on. And I'm 14 going, oops, Hello. I've never never seen anything like that. I'm like, that's kinda, what New York is like. I, I kind of <laughs> like this restaurant thing. Yeah, it's it's fun. Sounds like porkies. Um, and Wait, then, so what kind what kind of food did New York, New York, and Leicester Square think New Yorkers ate? What was their well, vision it was, of America? It was very, I guess, very much like you know, burgers, ribs, steaks, like American fare meat. of yeah, lots m- of meat, meat centric Caesar salad. Cobb salad, things like this. Yeah, manly salads um, and lots of meat. I do remember though. I I remember like the ribs are great. Like the baby back ribs, beautiful glaze, really like low smoking on it. Very good. I Legit. do remember. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 But I mean, this is one of those things where like I'm going to say if they made a movie about your life, but they did. But like if the, if yeah. there were a fictionalized yes. movie of your life and it opened with like you getting this job in the restaurant and it pulled back. I mean. It, you was know, so, I, it was just so fun New York, no, New York. The critics would just be like, really? really? This is lazy <laughs> screenwriting. Like, You couldn't make it up. Of all restaurants <laughs> anywhere on the planet with any name, it happened to be New York, New York. I That's, know. It's cra- It's like you look back and you go, in life, you can, can see where the dots join up to get you where you are. 
Maybe. I don't know. The Maybe narrative I, was I, there? I, it, it stuck in my head. New Do you York. know whatever happened to that restaurant? Uh, I think the building got pulled down and they built a hotel there. Very New York. Very, very, very expensive real estate <laughs> in is very um, New York. Leicester Square there. Very, that's like center London. Yeah. Wow. I feel like knocking down a beloved old restaurant to build a hotel is the most New York possible move. Absolutely. Also, like just keeping it up. Like, yeah. There we go. Yeah. Seeing, okay, but you were saying, so So yes. you're in the locker room seeing all of these naked girls. Boobs. And it's, lots of boobs. So many boobs. Yeah. I didn't realize so the restaurant industry was so full of boobs. That's great. Well, you know, it was summertime. Uh, it was hot in London. Uh, what can I tell you? Yeah. I mean, I didn't complain. Sure. I walked in. I was like, hello. I'm Paul. I wash dishes. This sounds like a Bill Murray comedy <laughs> from the 80s or something. You know? <laughs> Caddyshack. Yeah. But in a lo- I, I would totally watch yeah. like the 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 London. What, this was the 80s. God, I'm not that old. Bloody <laughs> hell. No. Sorry. No, this is like 1992. Okay, so I would totally watch the like mid 90s British restaurant interpreting New York. I think you know. I like the, the a lot of the British of, like, girls Empire. were young and they were very. Yeah. You know, that was. Uh, you know, the whole Britpop thing was starting then and everybody movie. was very proud and they were just throwing their clothes sure. off and just being Blur was British. really big, yeah. right? But, like, but it was, that was at the start. Yeah. Oasis and Blur hadn't really hit in 92. That was Suede uh, were the first real band. Suede is I my fa- like Suede. one of my favorite bands. I kind of like Suede. They're the best. You know, they had a very loyal following back in the day. And that's when, um, you know, the whole British thing was going into like mid-90s, like 95, 96, train spotting. Oasis. Cool Britannia. Britpop, but exactly. Yeah. So that's where you were. Just before. Yeah. So just before. Just before it. Okay. Mm. So you came of age when it blossomed. Yeah. I came, I mean, uh, 1992, I was 15, yes. And that's that, that the formative years of my youth going then through 93, 94, 95 was Britpop and Britain. And that's. Yeah. Did you ever go and see like Oasis at Glastonbury yeah. or anything like that? No, no that was Nebworth. That Nebworth, they did, the, the two big ones. Yeah, no, yeah. I didn't see them at Nebworth. I did see them at the at the um, uh, Earl's Court in London, which was uh, at the time I think it was one of the biggest shows, indoor shows ever done. When they're they're great in concert, really great. That's cool. So, but it had just like like attitude of just proud to be British and it was fantastic. Yeah, and you you were as well proud to be British and proud to be yeah. working, and then go to a restaurant like Escar- Escargot, which is a, f- yeah. a French restaurant in England. Yes, in Soho in London, which was one of the oldest ones in London there since the twenties. This continuous since the twenties, yeah, and a beautiful old like a townhouse style. So they had two restaurants. They had the fine dining upstairs, twenty seats, and then the um, more sort of brasserie downstairs. So I, at the tender age, went up. Stairs. Three of us in the kitchen. That was a learning curve. (laughs) Did you go to culinary school or was it all just... I did one day a week, yes. Just so I could have a written formal, which I've never used, but yeah, I have it. NVQs, we call them. National Vocational Qualifications in England. Yeah. But most of the learning was just like, I'm here in the restaurant having my job, doing the thing. I think most of this business, you know, you can talk to most chefs. They say, yes, that's generally where you learn your craft. Was there a moment for you when it, it all kind of crystallized, like when it went from being... Oh, there's boobs in the changing room to like <laughs> cooking is something that yeah. is part of who I am. Yes. Um, probably when I went to Paris. Yeah. At age, at age yes. what? How old were you? Uh, I was uh, 98. So um, 22, uh, 21, 22. And that was at Pierre Gagnier, yes. right? Yeah. Um, because back, back then um, that was, you know, that's right before Spain really exploded. Like Ferran had got the three stars and he was, but it hadn't really hit in this country just yet. But in Europe, people were talking. Right. The epicenter had sort of moved from France over to But France was still considered, at least my English, like a finishing school. And Paris was like, whoop. So, you know, if you went to work in Paris or in France at a three star, um, that was, you know, you, you come back and you've done it like you. So all the guys that I work with in the restaurants that I work with in London had all done it. The older Guys, they've been to Guy Savoie or uh, Michel Guérard or, you know, anywhere like this. So um, I worked with a gentleman who had been working, French gentleman, at, at a Pierre. And I mentioned and he made a call and I just went over on the Channel Tunnel and I staged for a year there. Um, and I think for me it was more, 
I don't know. You know, the appreciation for food there was just so – there's a depth, much more of a depth. I mean, every corner has a boulangerie or a patisserie, which London doesn't. And so you, you feel it in the soul. And that's something which just clicked. And I was a bit older. So you stodged for so, a year. But now in yeah, America, yeah. wouldn't they call that just working for a year? <laughs> yes, they would. Unpaid working, yes. Paid. Wow. I think the, the definition of a stodge has, like – I mean, now it's like, oh, I hung out at Noma for right. four hours. I yeah. have staged there. No, I, it was a full-time job. So I worked there, you know, six days a week. Um, and, yeah, it was unpaid. So Gagnier is, is – am I saying his name wrong? Pierre Gagnier. Gagnier. Yeah. I, I not only have a cough, I'm terrible at French pronunciation. Um, He's a truly, truly wonderful man. And his cuisine, I, I, I have never I had just, the pleasure of meeting him. But just, his, Well, if you see his cuisine, you can understand why it clicked in my head. Yeah. Because – you know, at that time, you know, that was right. I mean, the Fat Duck had opened in 95, but Heston was sort of very small then. So it was still very much Marco Pierre White. Gordon Ramsay was, hadn't got his third style yet. So it was very classical French, um, but it hadn't changed dramatically. Like now it's completely different. But Gagnier so, started introducing things like Asian elements. Exactly, and which no one in England was doing, except I opened Vong. In London for JG, oh, wow. which is Jean-Georges. another and spectacularly yes. influential. And I was there for a, a couple of months, and I opened it, and that also gave me the bug from meeting him to eventually then come across the pond and come here. But as far as purely food, going to Paris and the classicism, the typical French classicism, and Pierre at the base is very classic. Like all of his dishes are based on technique and solid French cookery, but the the, the 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 juxtaposition of ingredients of ideas of concept of texture and color and flavor blew me away because no one was doing anything like it and it's like jazz or poetry so it was then that I'm I'm cooking and I'm like I, you know I got there I didn't speak French I mean I speak a bit of French but not not fluently so all the French guys would give me a lot of shit so can I say shit? You can say anything. Okay. Yeah. All okay. of the bad words okay. on this show. Yeah, balls. Yeah, um, balls. So that's not even a bad word. <laughs> balls is like that's one of the ones you can say on TV even. Ah, okay. <laughs> so so they really like were very upset with me because like there's this fucking British guy who you can say that it, you know it it takes like twice as long to explain everything because I like my French grammar was I could say we oui, non you know give me the pan like basic kitchen French. So I learned French by just getting abused basically for a year and then listening. But once, as anybody that knows in the kitchen, once you, once you have an understanding and you just, the act of just cooking and you know what you're doing or what's required of you, people can watch and they can see, oh, okay, like you do or you do not know what you're doing. So once we got that, that rapport, the language became actually easy because it was just that very, it picked it up very quick. But the way Pierre thinks about food, and that really, to me, it was just like, it was. It was a switch, another switch going off and a little door opening up and saying, walk through that door. And it's okay to think slightly differently. And it's okay. Because the British, you know, they're very rules and very much like, this is the way. If you're going to do a Michelin-starred menu, you have to have Rouget, red mullet on the menu. And you have to have... There were, there were very set rules. If you looked at all the menus in London at that time, they were composed of the same I mean, beautiful ingredients, but they were all very much the same. Terrina foie gras with duck, with sautins gelée, and a green peppercorns. Uh, pigeon roti with pomme puree and cabbage and bacon. And it's all beautiful stuff, but it was still very formulaic for what it was. Pierre took that and went and put it completely off center. And he's still using a beautiful pigeon, but he's putting barberries with it and undercutting it with a beautiful puree of blackberry, which has got like, and, and it just, it took my whole way of thinking and made me think, I really resonate with this. And it really, 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 to me, struck a chord, which uh, I, I think we're lucky in life to meet someone that can do that for us and set us on a new way. Because if I hadn't, who knows? I wouldn't be sitting here. No way. Wouldn't come to America. No way. That New York, New York restaurant no. would not have been foreshadowing. No, it would It would have just been a stop on your resume. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? But, you know, it really, that was, I guess, the, the big one just was like, wow, that's like, oh, turn me on. 
Yeah, hugely. So did you have an opportunity to come to America or it was just like, I'm going to no. go over there and see what see what's shaken? No. So after working in France for a year and a half, because after Paris, I went to the Alps to check out the Alps because I always wanted to. They're big. To, they're very cold. I always wanted to go. So I went to Courchevel and I worked there for six months at a two-star place and dislocated my right shoulder in a snowboarding accident. <laughs> that would have been helpful in the kitchen to have a working shoulder. No, there was a guy that broke both his legs, so the, the chef got really upset and banned everybody like, from... You're not allowed to get on the slopes. Because like, he had no staff after three weeks. Everyone's, like, hobbling around. He's like, oh, my God, if we can't open the restaurant, everyone's injured. Were you so, all, like, people who had just sort of no, decided I was to the come on, to the Alps? No, I was the only or? non-French guy So they there. should have known better. Yeah, but, you know, boys will be boys, and we're so. in the Alps, and, and I'd never skied or, or surf, as they call it there, snowboarded before. And I think, like, you know, let's, let's go to show me. I'm like, okay. So they took me to the top of a black run. And those of you that know skiing, a black run is what's well, like vertical. And they took me way, way up. And I'm like, this seems kind of high. And they said, this is how you stand up. This is how you stop yourself. This is how you get up. See you at the bottom. And these guys had lived in that area, the Savoie region. They knew how to. And I was like, you know, oh, how hard can it be? And I went straight down the mountain, cartwheeling the whole way. And, uh, yeah, it was the only time that I put on a snowboard. Yeah. I have a, a Michelin question yes. for you. So you, when you referenced this Alpine job, you sort of offhandedly were like at a two-star place. Yes. Would it have ever occurred to you to work somewhere that was not a Michelin-starred restaurant? Absolutely it would. But I went there because it was under the recommendation of somebody in Pierre Gagnier's kitchen, more for the fact that I wanted to, well, A, learn about that that region of France. Because I re- like one of my favorite cheeses is a Robuchon cheese and Beaufort, which is from that area of France. So I wanted to go learn uh, that Alpine, uh, uh, not not techniques, but learn the Alpine kind of like what what is very seasonal there. The what, vocabulary so of that, their pantry. That, that's why I say two-star. Not not to be haughty or anything no, like no. that. No, not at all. Uh, Purely because to go there and work doing grilled cheese sandwiches probably wouldn't have been as fulfilling as, uh, you know, learning a little bit about the local berries that grow there and uh, making genepe, which is like, um, or sapin, which is like a, a cordial made from the pine shoots I there. I love genepe. It's yes. sap, sapin is what they yeah. call it, in uh, which uh, I was amazed by that kind of stuff. It's an amazing yeah. liqueur. But no, I mean, it has nothing to do with what the stars, nothing at all. I just really wanted to see the Alps, actually, which was kind of cool. I mean, you know, like like fondue and stuff. It was... Yeah. <laughs> do you still th- snowboard? No. No? That was it? Uh, yeah, that was my one time. I'm not good with my balance on my feet like that. Yeah. Did anybody give you any any advice um, before you came to America about like what to expect or? Yes, actually, everyone told me not to go here. It's horrible here. Like, no one should ever come here. The the British they they don't know what they're talking about. No, honestly, I had people <laughs> that were. I had a friend of mine who had a friend who was walking down Fifth Avenue, and this guy just came up to him, stuck a gun in his face, and robbed him, and then shot him in the leg for no reason and ran off. And I'm like, really? Wow, that happened. Like, yeah, in broad daylight. Happens all the time. That's America. That's New York. Don't you watch the movies? <laughs> and and um, and I was like going, uh, okay, maybe, maybe I don't want to go. But I did. And obviously I'm still here. So no one's done that to me yet. Was Atlas, that was your first job here in America? No. Um, Boulay was. All right. Boulay Bakery was. Did yes. you get shot in the leg? No, I got fired. That's from the Boulay. emotional version of that, I guess, of getting shot in the uh, leg on I Fifth Avenue. I probably getting daylight. shot in the leg is worse, honestly. I will but. say that okay. Mr. Boulay yeah. is one of the strangest people I've ever met in the restaurant business. I, right. I talked to him a lot once about um, dental hygiene. Huh. He was like <laughs> really? really excited to talk dental to me. Dental hygiene. Wow. I, I ran into him okay. at some event, and I, I don't even remember how it came up, but he started telling me that he's really into this um, thing called oil pulling. What is that? Which is when you... Um, take a couple of tablespoons of oil in your mouth and you uh, proponents of it use coconut oil and mm. um, you slosh it around in your mouth for like 10 minutes and then spit out all the oil and it's an alternative method of, of tooth cleaning. I don't know. We I, There was a lot of alcohol at this party. Ah, uh, I see. But, okay. Um, that's my David Belay story. 
So this was not a good experience or a, well... No, uh, what, the, the oil pulling? The oil pulling sounds in? amazing, but no. Okay, yeah, no, right, but, but yeah. getting fired from Boulay Bakery, tell us all about Look, that. Look, that was my first, yeah. like, my first, you know, real job here in America. I mean, <laughs> it was like fresh off the boat. I didn't know what was going on. Um, plus, I was dating um, his cousin, Katrine, at the time. We were living together. It probably didn't help. Is that how you got the job? No. Or I met, her, a, I met a, her there. It was a bonus of the job. Yeah, it was. Um, so yes, yeah, I, I, I got fired from there, but as with everything, I got fired and through that, um, Atlas came along. So if I hadn't been fired, I wouldn't have gone to Atlas. And if you hadn't gone to Atlas, you wouldn't have had the documentary and I wouldn't also, be here. and uh, again, Guaranteed. like it all just funnels to Life this Life has a funny way, right? Well, let's yeah. talk about right now. Mm. What do you spend your time doing these days? Um, a lot of traveling of late over the past, I guess, year and a half, um, consulting on a lot of different projects. What does consulting mean for you? Consulting, well, um, through we, we have a, a management company which we we do all of our work through, and Who's we, we do uh, my partners and myself. And if there's a, somebody out there that has a restaurant or has a space that would like us to come in and every facet of whatever it is, whether it's the back of house, the front of house, the uh, the food, the wine, the design, the financial model, all of it. We go in and we have uh, obviously uh, uh, they, they tell us what, what they need and we will give them obviously a, uh, a proposal on what they would like and we move forward or we don't depending on what they want. So we've done this quite a lot. Um, and when I say we, we have people that we work with from the real estate side, on the financial side, on the front house side and what have you. So... Um, and I and I do this on, I do this very under the radar. Like I don't put my name on this because it's not about me at all. It's about the client. So we've done stuff. I mean, you know, all over the world. And so we, it takes up a lot of time to do that. Um, private dinners, um, a lot of those. Yeah. Which you do? Yeah, yeah. They're really fun. Will you come cook in my house if I, I pay I, you I, enough? I, 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 <laughs> you don't have to pay me. That'd be fine. Um, I'd love to. It's great. I love cooking for people. Do you cook in their homes? Oh, yes, absolutely. What's it like to cook in in someone else's home kitchen? It's really fun. I would assume these are mostly fairly wealthy folks who have very exciting well, home kitchens. you know, I mean, there's, it varies. It varies. It's not about the money. It's about, you know, the, event that's, the events that we do do. Um, it really depends on what, what the person wants. I mean, uh, we did, uh, like this past weekend, I was at Chef's Garden, you know, the beautiful in, in Huron, Ohio, doing a dinner vegetable dinner out there just because because I've known family for 17 years and asked me to come out and I said sure we're available this weekend and we just did it um we do a lot of stuff with I guess different brands things like that how does it feel to not have a restaurant to go to every day um a little maddening do you miss it yes do you are, are you are you gonna have another one possibly so the last restaurant we were at was like one of my favorite <laughs> restaurants um, that I ever went to in New York or, you know, it was this place, the Elm that was in Williamsburg. Uh -huh. It was such a big yes. deal when you opened there, I thought, because it was like, mm. here we have this two Michelin star chef that is opening a restaurant and hotel in Brooklyn, kind of nothing like that had ever happened before. And kind mm. of, a, I mean, I really thought it was both a splurge restaurant and kind of an everyday restaurant and um, in an unlikely position and it was just really it was really dope you know as as someone thank you um and i was sad to see it go but i know that it's uh you know the well the business you know the way changes. real estate changes hands these days that's that's what happens yeah so since it gets bought and sold all the time so, so the the hotel was sold is that the story and they just yes man yeah i guess everything is everything mortal, is for sale and everything yes. is for sale yes Greg, let's take a quick pause from this interview to check in with the sponsor who makes everything possible from the Eater Upsell. And by makes everything possible, I mean keeps this podcast coming to you, listeners, for free every single week. Hello Fresh. Hello Fresh. I love I love that name. Hello Fresh. Yeah, it's a it's a meal kit. And I took this thing for a spin. Um, it was three meals in a big box. They were all vegetarians, the one I tried, and they were all really tasty, fun to put together, did not take too long had some fun, fresh spring vegetables in them as well. Possibly the best part, depending on where your priorities lie vis-a-vis -vis these things, is not just the fresh spring vegetables or the vegetarian options, but that every HelloFresh meal clocks in at under 10 bucks a meal, 
which is pretty darn affordable, especially for something that helps you get a really good dinner on the table very quickly. If any of our listeners are interested in trying HelloFresh, we actually have a promo code. You can enter Eater30 for $30 off your first week. At HelloFresh.com. Okay, we did our ad. Let's get back to the conversation with Paul Liebrandt. So it sounds like, are you just kind of taking your time to find the right next, whatever yes. the might, thing might yeah. be? Yes. You're not just, I mean, it sounds like you've, you're very busy just without a, a full-time restaurant to be a part you know, of. When you, uh, you know, anybody will tell you once you start doing restaurants, I mean, it's all encompassing. It sucks your life in everything. And you're there seven days a week. You're there all hours of the day. And there's so many little things, especially in openings to, to, you know, get the machine, all everything moving correctly. And, um, it's, it's, if you do it, it has to be right. Cause a lot of energy and money and time and other people that will come on board with you. So if you're going to do it, you really want to make sure it's secure so that that's really finding the right scenario for that is, um, it, it can be a challenge. Have you, found yourself in scenarios that have been wrong? Yes. Haven't we all? How do you know? How do you know if it's wrong or if it's right? What if it what I if think, it look, tells? It's like, like, like a marriage, right? Okay. People get divorced. People get married all the time. Um, Usually in the opposite order. Well, it depends on... I guess it depends on, it how, depends many on how many marriages you're going to have. Yeah, exactly. You're right. Um, so, you know, if we, if we were that cautious, we'd never get married or divorced, right? So you have you, you meet someone, you like them, you like them a lot, they like you, you get married. And then over time, depending on the relationship, things go great or they don't. And then you get divorced or you don't. That's just a fact of life. And the same thing is true with any business, especially with restaurants. So I think you don't know until you really get into something if it's really going to be a long-term marriage as such. Did you go into your restaurant career knowing that you would have to develop such a business acumen or did it come Oh, absolutely come with not. Time? No, as a chef, they never teach you about business. That's why chefs are terrible businessmen for the most part. They're awful. So how'd you learn? Um, school of hard knocks. Yeah, trial and error. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Do you like the business stuff? Do you get into it? Now that you've learned, uh, I, I, you have to, and um, you know, obviously, the food and the creativity part is obviously, you know, what I, I, I tends to, you know, light my fire the most. But that does go hand in hand with. In order to do that, you need to understand the other part of it, which is how do you, does that become a function of a business? So um, that that really actually is now the the main focus of um, everything that my team and I do. So. But it, it does seem like there's a distillation, like with the consulting work that mm. you do, especially since you were saying it's all fairly under the table. Like your name is not over the door. It's yeah. not like a polybrand operation. Meant to be. Not you know? meant to be. Yeah. And so you're doing a a version of the creative work of opening a restaurant mm. without the what I think of at least as the creative fulfillment of recognition for your talents. Mm-hmm. How is uh, which I think seems somewhat at odds with the driving force behind wanting to be a chef and wanting to open restaurants like you're just you're taking your expertise but you're not getting any of the glory i don't think it's about glory though i think if i was 23 years old at atlas it's more about the glory because you're starting out and you're making a name but i'm a different person these days as everybody is once they they've been doing this for a while my goal is to help the clients they come to me they need something they need whatever it is i'm there to help them i'm there to guide them um, and and whatever I can do to make them successful. That, to me, is very fulfilling for me. Just as we were talking about people that have worked for us in the kitchen, I really enjoy seeing guys that have worked with us for a couple of years go off, do their own thing, and be successful and get Rising Star Chef or get Best New Chef or whatever it is. And it's like, you know what? I really good for you. Like I, I'm, I, It makes me feel very fatherly in a way. That you see your kids, you know, you want them to succeed, do better than you. So in a way, it, it's sort of like that, I suppose. Um, and, you know, people, you make people happy. You know, you give them what they want. Um, consulting is, I know it's a word that kind of people throw around a lot, but, you know, there, there are ways to do it. So we just like to lend our support to people that maybe want to do something which is maybe not as high end as some of the stuff I've done, but they still want to have some input from people like myself that have done it. 
Chef, on your Instagram, you have a lot of lovely photos, some of which ah, you've taken. So your you. Instagram handle is your name. And yes. um, you have a lot of lovely photos, some of which are from you, some of which are from your collaborator, Evan Sung. Um, I'm just kind of curious, what are those What are those dishes? Are those things you're working on? Just Do you just keep working on new dishes just to sort of have a... Um, yeah, we do. Um, a lot of them are from dinners, like I said, that we do. Um any new ideas, uh, anything like this. Um, but um, it, it's really, it's just stuff that I feel people would respond to when they like. And Instagram's a good, great way of letting people know you're still alive <laughs> and where you are. It's a good way to put it, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, what have you been up to? Well, just have a look at Instagram. Okay, you were here, you were here, you were here. Oh, you did a dinner here? I'm like, yep, there you go. Are you worried that people will forget that you're alive? Aren't we all? I guess so. I guess there is this... Mortality, fear underneath all? everything. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, when people you know, want people to still say, "Oh yeah, you know, who oh, him?" That guy, uh, of course. I like that guy. Yeah. How much do you feel the need to stay in touch with what's going on in like New York? Um, like on the level that oh, you I read, work? I read Eater every day. I'm a big fan. Oh, you don't have to just say that. I'm not. I do. I always have done. <laughs> Do you go out? Even when you used to have all the comments. Yeah. Oh, the comments. Oh. Yeah, that was. Yeah, would you read the comments? No. Do you self-Google? No. Really? Yeah, I don't. You don't? I hate reading about myself. I hate it. You hate it? Oh, God. You want everyone to know that you're alive, but you... No, no, through, you pictures, through pictures, okay. through pictures, okay. through pictures, through pictures. Visual. There are, a lot of, there are a lot of, like, really wacky people out there that write stuff, and it's not nice to read. Like, when the movie came out, um, you know, I was, you know, let's say vocal, let's just say in the kitchen, in a scene or two in the movie, um... Not not in a bad way, but in a in a passionate way to to bring the best out of everybody in the kitchen. Sure. And I did get a lot of people. Well, a lot. I got three people uh, anonymously send me emails uh, with death threats. Actually, yes. Because you yelled in the kitchen. Um, yeah, saying uh, you better watch your back. We're going to put you in the ground. This this sort of thing. Yes. Because the movie went global. I mean, BBC bought it. Like it's all over the world, and I don't know where the emails came from, but yeah, I did, and I passed them on to the relevant people to investigate. But that's what I'm saying. Is like you never know, right? So after the film, did anyone come up to you and was like, "Hey, Paul, let's put you on a cooking show. Like, let's do like yes." And yes. and you said, "No, nope, I don't like cooking shows." Do you watch them? Nope. I don't. And how think, do you know you I, don't I'm like not, them? I'm not a fan of the whole sort of cooking. As a competition thing, it's like like uh, you know culinary cockfighting in my in my view. I don't like it. Cooking is something which is there's passion and feeling and there's there's like emotion with it. And I I think to make a game show out of it is just personally I'm not a big fan of that. You know, I mean uh, at least these days. You know, back in back in the day, maybe in the '90s, you know, with Iron Chef in Japan. Maybe that's maybe different because they had you know, that was like the best of the best culinary from around the globe, and that was judged by Charles Robichon and you know people that. That's different. I'm not talking about. I'm talking about today's kind of culinary stuff, which I'm. I'm the not, fast-moving game show I, style. I don't. I don't really gravitate towards that era of the business personally. No. I'm How do you feel about it. the idea of celebrity chef? Oh. Celebrity chef. I mean, what is a celebrity chef? No, what is a celebrity chef? Because you have your name in the paper, you're a celebrity? No. Not at all. Murderers have their names in the paper. That doesn't mean you're a celebrity. <laughs> What's been interesting on the, the writer side of things is that shows like Chopped and Cutthroat mm -hmm. Kitchen churn through their guests at mm -hmm. such a volume that, uh, at least according to the, the press releases that flood our inboxes, it seems like pretty much anybody who has ever put on an apron at this point is identified as a celebrity chef. It's oh, like it's, celebrity it's chef Jane Doe, yeah. who was on Chopped for three minutes before cutting her finger and needing to go home in an ambulance, is available for interviews. Yeah, that that's a term that gets bandied about far too far too much. <laughs> but, yeah. But so you 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 never you've never done it for the fame. Oh God no. Even like the the, the documentary thing, right? There was never a plan. They were just filming. There wasn't a plan to say, we're going to take this footage and turn it into a movie. That's why I agreed to do it. If they had said day one, we're going to make a movie, I would have been very hesitant. I don't want my raw emotions 
as it turned out, they they were on. (laughs) Millions millions of people saw it, but I didn't. I didn't go into it going, yeah. No, absolutely. Anyone that really knows me will know I am the. I'm so shy. I'm very shy. I don't like having my picture taken. I don't like reading about myself. I don't like people. You know, I like to just. I do my job. Being on podcasts. (laughs) This is different because Eater is something that I know and I, I I've been a part of for many years, and it's. It's a benchmark in the industry. It's different. Thank you. Um, so I, I don't, I don't generally no. I don't, I don't seek it out. And I think, uh, for me personally, I'm more comfortable in that way. Um, if somebody wants to say something, they they're going to say it anyway, right? Very cool. Well, I think we're approaching the period of the show that we like to call the lightning round. And is it true that we have a special lightning round guest waiting in the wings? I've heard, I've heard that we do. It, it turns out, so um, the Eater Upsell is an audio show, so you can't see where we're all sitting. But to give you guys listening at home a sense of the physicality of things, Paul and I are sitting in a small podcasting room. We are looking at a TV screen on which Greg is displayed in his at-home podcasting studio in Pasadena, California. Behind us, behind me and Paul, is a glass window into our control room where our producers, Dan and Miles, are hanging out making sure that our audio sounds good. Usually we can see in there and we all make faces at each other. But today there is a large object (laughs) preventing us from seeing into this glass room. This is completely true. I'm actually going to take a picture of it. I will post it on the Internet when this episode airs so you guys can see that I'm not lying about the fact that we have literally physically obstructed our view into this room. And the reason for that is because our special question asker is a previous guest on the Eater Upsells lightning round section. You've heard his voice before, Ryan Sutton, who is Eater to New York's restaurant critic and as such is anonymous. And so on the off chance that Paul opens another restaurant, which we hope he does, Ryan might have to review it and we don't want Paul to know what his face looks like. So Ryan... Welcome to the Eater Upsell. Thank you, Helen. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I understand you have some questions for Paula Brent. I do have some questions. So my first question is, uh, if you had a blank check for a restaurant, say an investor simply walks up to you, she hands you $10 million or thereabouts, what type of restaurant would you like to open? Seafood restaurant. Can I press you on, say, would a... like a Le Bernardin classic French seafood restaurant, more no, of an Oceana, no, no. a big old seafood restaurant, or more like a no, no. chef's table at Brooklyn Fair seafood no, restaurant? Uh, it would be something like a Wheelers of St. James from London. Beautifully classical, uh, back to the Victorian age. Everything, like jellied eels. Like it's, it's a brand that was back to 18 whatever when it opened, but um, shellfish towers, pristine seafood coming in from the coast, Cornwall, Dover, every day. Would it be in Britain? Uh, no, no, we're here in New York because the seafood you get on the East Coast here is bar none, outstanding. The quality and the, the blew me away the first time I saw the oysters that you can get here. In England, we only have four kinds of oysters. First time I came here, I'm like, how many? And you have West Coast? Amazing. So it would be something like a Wheelers of St. James's if there was like a blank check, yeah. Oh, chef, you should do that. Pristine, like, because I love seafood. It's my dear to my heart. What yeah. neighborhood would you open it in? Downtown. Yeah. Below 14th Street. In Manhattan. Hell yeah. No more Brooklyn. I only did a restaurant in Brooklyn. That doesn't mean that, like, I... You did a restaurant in Brooklyn. It's, okay. You, you went but to I did, Brooklyn. I've, I've done, the rest of my career have been in Manhattan. I guess I just yeah. don't like to go far from home. Neither do I. That's why I do it below 14th. I live in financial, so for me, this is great down oh, here. Oh, yeah. You can just pop I over and do a podcast whenever you want. Yeah. You should come hang out in the eater office. I love it. We've got an extra desk. You can just plug in. I could be like an I could be like a celebrity writer for you. Yes, yes. All right, oh, you're yeah. going to now contribute to Eater. It's there perfect. you go. Okay, Ryan. Ryan, what's your next? Uh... Uh, I do have a question for the chef. Uh, so, Paul, you're famous as a as a pretty modern, technical, and even maybe even experimental chef. But you're also famous for serving a pretty great burger, especially at the Elm. <laughs> and I I thought you might like to tell us what makes a good burger and and who you think is at the top of uh, her or his game right now in New York. Um, what makes a good burger for me is um, something that it's not just the meat or the bun or the filling or the. It, it's something where all the sum of everything is greater than each piece it's individually. The, the whole thing. And um, something which uh, you crave. 
So I, I, I wouldn't say it's one particular thing. Sorry if I'm being a little abstract here, but... Is it more fun to make a burger or eat a burger? It's more fun for me to make a burger and watch someone enjoying it. This seems philosophically consistent with other things that you've said over the course of Honest this conversation. Honest to God. I mean, like, I, I'm not... Are you not, a people I, pleaser? I'm not a big eater myself. Like, I generally eat more Japanese-y kind of food. But to make a burger, serve it to someone that's, that, that has no expectations and watch them eat it and really get into it, enjoy it, that's 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 why you make it, right? So for me, that's the payoff. Um, uh, Ryan, what's next? Uh, next is you talk so beautifully about how France impressed upon you when you were a, a young chef and a young gourmand. What, if you had to give some advice to a uh, a young and up and coming culinarian right now, uh, where do they go? Do they go to France? Do they go to Denmark? Do they go to Australia? Do they go to the Vietnam? Where do you go both as a, either a young chef or a young eater who wants to learn about the world? I, I think everything you just said. Honestly, uh, the world is a much uh, bigger place in terms of gastrono gastronomy than it was 20 years ago. Um, you know, 20 years ago, you didn't have uh, the Nordic area of the world doing what they're doing now. You just didn't. Um, and I think that anybody that wants to educate themselves as an eater or as a chef should experience all of it. Um, certainly, France will will never, ever go away as far as gastronomy goes. There's, there's a standard there, which I feel is a benchmark in many ways. Um, and, you know, the, the Nordic, Denmark, uh, uh, you know, Norway, Sweden, Finland, Iceland, um, the whole area uh, is fantastic for what they do. Uh, that area of the world has such great um, culinary um, promise as far as what they give to the world and what they have been doing for the past couple of years, as France has done, as Asia has done. So I think it's educating yourself as a whole is really the most important aspect for any young culinarian or foodie. Um, experience it all and then take what you like. Ryan! Do you have any more questions for uh, our esteemed guest? Two more quick questions. Uh, I keep looking over at the blocked window. Like, I can't even see you, but I keep rotating in my chair. I can see you, Helen Rosner. But I'm just, like, looking at you, and all you see is the back of my head. Hi, Ryan. I'm waving at the camera now. Paul, what can you tell us of what you see when you look into the future? Do you see a strong backbone of classic French restaurants uh, in the United States anymore? Or, or will that give way to a, a larger and more diverse culinary scene? I think a larger, more diverse culinary scene. I think, um, you know, like gastronomy, if you look back over the decades, is very cyclical. Um, there are certain things that don't change. Um, but every time it comes back around, same thing with fashion. Every time it comes back around, it comes back, but it's slightly in a different way. And that's obviously to do with people's likes, the dislikes generational change of, of how people approach gastronomy and food. Um, so I think that French is something I've always been, like I've said, dear to my heart. That won't go away, but how people approach it um, definitely does change. Um, I guess, look, an analogy I would, I would say is 100 years ago, people went to the opera, right? And they wore a top hat and tails and the gentleman wore white gloves and what have you. People still go to the opera today. In fact, the same operas today, but they don't necessarily wear top hat, tails. They want the same thing. They just want it in a slightly different way. The ritual around it has it's, changed. It, it, but the core of what it is doesn't change. It's how people approach it. And gastronomy is a perfect mirror image of that. So um, it always comes back and it's always going. And when it comes back, there's something new and it... That's how you grow. That's how things get better. If it's just stuck doing the same thing, it would be a very boring, boring world. So, yeah, I think globalization, um, you know, influences from Mexico, from uh, Denmark, from South America, from America, from Europe. Um, it used to be very departmentalized, um, basically, of you cooked in this area, that's what you cooked. The nice thing is that you have influencers now coming from all over the world, chefs from all over the world, um, pollinating what they do from their home country and what makes them a chef with other chefs from around the world, more so than at any other time in history. And I think that that's a good thing. I think that that's a learning thing. I think that that's an inspirational thing. Um, I had a chance to work with some gentlemen from South America, from Brazil. 
and they showed me ingredients and techniques that I've never seen because that's not part of the world which I am well-traveled in and what have you. So for me, that was genius. I loved it. And I think that's, that's only only positives. Yeah. Cool. Uh, Ryan, I think you have one more question. Yeah. Lay have, it on us. I have kind of a, a business-related question. And mm. One of the interesting things about you know today's gastronomic world is we have so many uh, or of our best chefs uh, working in jobs that are not necessarily head chef's jobs. Uh, you're seeing some of the best chefs lead restaurant, leave restaurants and work for either technology companies or they mm. Uh, they go and they become private chefs. I have to ask, from a you know, as I often look at the business of restaurants, mm. is it more is it more lucrative and therefore smarter to become a, a consultant uh, instead of a, a head chef these days? Is that the future? Are you asking if he's making more money as a consultant than a chef? Yes. Cool. <laughs> um, I think opportunity and business climate really is what that comes down to. Um, when there is opportunity to do projects, restaurants, etc., chefs will generally do them. When there isn't, they don't do them. Simple as that. So um, the climate right now uh, on the business side is not to obviously open the style of restaurants that uh, I've done in the past and a few other of the contemporaries in the business have done. Um, that doesn't mean that that's it because I heard fine dining is dead 20 years ago. Um, it's not dead. It's just, like I said, comes back People around. People just love to say that. It's a, it's a pithy line, right? Fine dining is dead. Yeah. Let's just all say it and get it out of our systems. You know, people like like the 80s are back in fashion right now. They are. I love the it. The 80s are back, but not exactly the 80s. Well, it's, but, the, it's the 2010s but it's, version but it's, of the 80s. It's, it's a version of it, and it keeps coming and going. So I think that um, when there's opportunity, you'll see more restaurants opening uh, when the business climate is a little quieter. We've just had an election. Um, Economy-wise, you know, the, the markets are doing great, but that's not such a reflection of the actual economy. Um, you know, investors are, are sitting there and they want to do stuff, but they're still a little unsure with regards to uh, in this country and in this city, the election, you know, that, that makes a lot of people nervous. So you have a lot of chefs who have to do other things to keep busy, which is why myself and a lot of other people. Yes, we'd love to open restaurants every day, but that's not possible. So what do we do? We're not going to stop cooking. So, Well, that was a very skillful evasion of our question probing into your personal finances. Thank you for <laughs> all of that. Well, Paula Brent, thank you so much for coming by the Eater Upsell. Greg and I will wait with bated breath for your next restaurant. Thank you so Which much for so having me. About. It's a real pleasure. And in the meantime, enjoy all the amazing food photographs on your Instagram handle. And that's how we know that you're still working and doing awesome things. <laughs> that you're still alive. Thank you. When the Instagram stop, we will call to make sure that you are not dead in an apartment being eaten by wild dogs. Are you on Twitter or anything? Or Instagram's like your main? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, yeah. It's both your your handle is at Bully Brand on Twitter and Instagram. Yes. Okay. Yep. Well, we'll follow yep. you. Facebook. And, yeah, yeah. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much Thanks for joining so much, us. Jeff. Thanks very much, Greg. Pleasure. And for those of you listening, if you are excited by any of these things that we've been talking about, if you want to talk to us about them some more, if you want to recommend a chef or a food world person or even a non-food world person who is interested in food that you think that Greg and I should talk to in an upcoming episode of The Eater Upsell, don't forget that you can always drop us a line at upsell at eater.com U-P-S-E-L-L at eater.com Thanks so much. Bye everyone. Bye. Awesome. The Eater Upsell is recorded at Vox Media Studios in Manhattan and Los Angeles. Your hosts are me, Helen Rosner, and Greg Morabito, that other guy whose voice you hear on every episode. Our executive producer is Maureen Giannone. Our associate producer and editor is Daniel Janine. Our editorial producer is Monica Burton. Our studio team is Miles Ewell, Alex Ulreich, Paige Bethman, and Stephanie Broderick. And our editor-in-chief and fearless leader is Amanda Clute. But of course, of all of these people, the one who makes all of this possible, without whom none of this could exist, without whom we would just wither and die, is you, dear listener. You. Thank you for listening to what we do here, and thank you for being your beautiful self.